You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Hey, welcome to Radio Free Canada News Notes and Opinions from the Underground for Thursday, November the 11th. And it is great to be with you. It's great to be back in Canada after a month away in Greece. And uh, most of all, it's great to be back live. Live radio once again from my home studio in Thornhill on this Remembrance Day. And I hope you took a few moments this morning at 11 to observe a few minutes of silence to remember our fallen soldiers. I must say, however, a rather awkward Remembrance Day service at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. When the Prime Minister and the Governor General, Mary Simon, arrived late. Now, supposedly, supposedly there was a, a suspicious package at the ceremony that delayed their arrival, except except I don't know if if there were a suspicious package. What do you think about this, Jacob? Didn't you find this a little odd if there was a suspicious package? within the vicinity, wouldn't they have evacuated everyone? They were just going to allow the Remembrance Day service to go on, despite the fact there was a suspicious package, but they prevented the prime minister and the governor general from moving into the area. I don't know. The suspicious package story sounds, well, suspicious. However, however, I should stop myself. I should... Really, on this Remembrance Day, I should give them the benefit of the doubt. A, because it's Remembrance Day, and I really, I don't want to sully 
Remembrance Day and this solemn occasion by getting too political. And B, quite frankly, because I don't I don't know if I have the energy, I'm still pretty wiped feeling uh, the effects of jet lag. They say it takes about one day for every hour difference in time zones to recover. So Greece is seven hours ahead. And I arrived home Tuesday, early evening. So I've got another, what, five days, I suppose, before I start feeling back to normal or recover from jet lag. And uh, quite a welcome home, I must say. After my Air Canada flight landed at Pearson, they wouldn't let us off the plane. Unless you had uh, a connecting flight that you had to catch. So... If you had to make a connection, they let you off. Everyone else, they prevented us from disembarking. And I would say it was what, maybe 45 minutes? It wasn't the airline's fault. This is uh, apparently this had to do with Canada Customs. And I guess they're trying to stagger the number of people in the terminals coming off of the planes because of COVID restrictions. That's, I guess, I never really got a straight answer. But then after getting off the plane 45 minutes later, and incidentally, can they do that? Why can they do that? Isn't that like unlawful confinement, unlawful detainment? Aren't we supposed to have like a passenger's bill of rights? It's a pretty big terminal. I'm sure allowing a couple of extra hundred people into the terminal isn't going to cause a problem. But then you have to line up anyway. Despite having a negative PCR test, to get on the plane back in Greece, we have to line up for another test. And now, of course, uh, I'm in the second day of a 14-day a 14 a quarantine. So what's the point? What's the point of getting a negative test before getting on the plane to Canada if we just have to have another test when we land? I'll tell you why. Punishment. Punishment. They're trying to discourage people from traveling. They're trying to make it as inconvenient and uncomfortable as possible. And I don't know what uh, flight attendants look like on the other airlines. But I have to say, the Air Canada flight attendants look like they were either, I don't know, preparing for surgery, like about to do an organ transplant, or they were expecting an Ebola outbreak right there on the plane. All but one, all but one of the flight attendants, they were wearing some kind of, I don't know, surgical looking gown, gloves, rubber gloves, masks, and safety goggles. And they're rolling the uh, the beverage cart up and down. Is that supposed to, you know, help my appetite? Someone in a hazmat suit handing me my meal and a pair of tongs. And then after, as I say, after this 45 minute delay, further punishment for daring to travel during a pandemic, uh, you line up for that second test. Despite already having had been tested negative before getting on the plane. And then, of course, you have to provide details of your quarantine plan. So here I am alone in the basement for the next two weeks. But but if I were doubly vaxxed. I wouldn't have to quarantine even though, of course, the doubly vaxxed can still spread COVID. Because, 
because this is all about punishing dissidents. It's not science. It's a system of punishment and reward. And they send you home with a test kit. I haven't cracked it open yet. I don't know what uh, what surprise is in there. And I have to do the uh, I have to do the the home kit PCR test in front of a witness on a Zoom call, I guess, in the presence of my parole officer. And of course, you have to check in every day on the Canada Arrive app, can uh, Arrive Can app, it's called. And we're warned that someone could call every day to make sure, you know, you're adhering to the quarantine. They could call you every day or they could visit the home. So we're being treated like criminals, essentially. Anyway, uh, touch wood so far, nobody's called. But I can't seem to access. There's this other layer you have to jump through. It's, a, it's called a switch health account. And you're supposed to log in there when you're ready to do your, your home test after eight days of quarantining. But I say, but I also, I can't seem to access the results of my PCR test that I did at the airport. It's just very clunky. So you've got the app and then you've got a switch health account. Too many, too many hoops to jump through. And it's very, it's just, it's all very glitchy and clunky. Huh, not surprisingly, clunky, clunky. That, that pretty much sums up everything the Canadian government attempts. Clunky. My word, our crime minister can't even get to Remembrance Day services on time. Ah, there I said it. Couldn't help myself. Um, have you seen any of the, uh, the coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial? Rittenhouse was the teenager, I guess he was 17 at the time who showed up at a BLM riot in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with an AR-15 rifle. And he was there to, uh, I guess, to help protect some of the local businesses from being looted or set on fire. And while he was there, he got into some altercations. He ended up shooting three people, two of whom died. And there was, at the time, there was a lot of video that came out not definitive proof, mind you, but still a lot of video that came out from all different angles. Which appeared to show Rittenhouse was acting in self-defense, which he had claimed all along. But of course, the mainstream media. Who have learned nothing from the Nick Sandman affair. And they quickly labeled Rittenhouse a mass murderer. Social media, the same thing. If anyone dared to question that Rittenhouse, in fact, might be innocent, that it wasn't all done in self-defense. You were thrown in Twitter jail. Well, this this whole trial, if you've been following it, has been pretty bizarre because all of the prosecution's supposed star witnesses, all of their supposed star witnesses are backing up Rittenhouse's claims that he acted in self-defense. And now we're hearing that the jury is being threatened. Another supposed star witness for the prosecutors seemed to suggest the prosecutors were engaged in some kind of cover up. U.S. trial lawyer John O'Connor will be here to discuss. Also, Thursdays, of course, we get gender critical. Amy Eileen Hamm, a founding member of COSBAR, Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights 
will be here to respond to a recent opinion hit piece on uh, Cosbar, published by the CBC. Cosbar then responded with a complaint to the CBC ombudsman, and then the reply to Cosbar's uh, complaint came from the uh, digital editor at CBC News. So we'll speak to Amy about all of that. Now, speaking of bizarre, not sure if you saw Dr. Kieran Moore's press conference yesterday. Dr. Moore, Ontario's chief medical officer of health, appeared to suggest that despite the high uptake in vaccines in Ontario, cases are on the rise again. And this must be, this must be because the unvaccinated are cheating and forging their vax passports and then sneaking into venues and infecting the vaccinated. How else to explain what's going Well, yeah, how else to explain? The vaccines don't work. Anyway, he's, uh, he's talking tough. He's talking about increasing enforcement measures, which is kind of bizarre because last time I checked, Dr. Kieran Moore, unelected and unaccountable chief medical officer of health, you're not the government. Isn't that the, the government's job to decide about enforcement measures? Oh, wait, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I, I almost forgot. You are the de facto premier because uh, our fearless leader is hiding behind the people in white coats. Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital, the accidental and unofficial COVID data analyst, will be here to discuss. And I guess no Lou today. Haven't uh, been able to raise Lou. Well, we'll try to get Lou on in the second hour. The irascible but lovable Lou Skeezes. I've missed Lou, and I'm sure you have. I know you have. You've all missed Lou. Uh, Peter Navarro, former assistant to President Donald Trump, will be here in the second hour. And uh, Peter served as Director of Trade and Manufacturing Policy and the National Defense Production Act Policy Coordinator inside the Trump White House. And uh, he sort of coordinated production of a lot of the... Uh, the PPE equipment, uh, PPE rather, the personal protection equipment and uh, the ventilators and that big medical, uh, that uh, hospital ship that went to New York that was never used. He was sort of responsible for coordinating a lot of that. Anyway, he has a new book out titled In Trump Time, A Journal of America's Plague Year. Again, our feature guest in hour two, Peter Navarro. All right, when we come back, John O'Connor, trial lawyer, and this bizarre Kyle Rittenhouse criminal trial. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Remembrance Day, Thursday, November the 11th. Back with more in three minutes. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Last summer, Illinois teenager Kyle Rittenhouse took his AR-15 to a BLM riot in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Ended up shooting three people. Two of them died. And uh, he was basically, again, convicted on social media and in the court of public opinion. Uh, called a mass murder. Obviously, they learned nothing, nothing from the Nick Sandman affair. The only problem is numerous uh, videos posted online appeared to show Rittenhouse acting in self-defense. And, and most of the prosecution's supposed star witnesses in this case also appear to confirm this fact. It's turning out to be one of the strangest criminal trials I've ever seen on TV. Uh, U.S. Attorney John O'Connor 
uh, is with us. He's the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed, Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. And of course, the host of the popular podcast, The Mysteries of Watergate. John, welcome back. How are you, my friend? Good. Good to be with you, Richard. Yeah. So uh, have you ever seen a trial like this where all of the prosecution star witnesses actually end up supporting the the defense? Well, you've got these things that John Adams said, uh, facts are very stubborn things, Richard. And it's very hard to get honest people on the stand to testify against the facts. They were just there. It's this is one of the clearest cases of self-defense I've ever seen. Uh, I think any prosecutor would just blanch at the thought that he would have to charge a case like this and try it. Uh, It's one that is spurred by the heat of the moment. uh, And it's a real problem in our system now when apparently constitutional rights do not apply to some people. Uh, I, I noticed, for example, Joe Scarborough saying the other day on his show, how terrible it is that the judge was actually controlling the trial. How about that? So imagine. Yeah. And, and that the judge didn't let the prosecution violate Rittenhouse's constitutional rights and and allow him to question Rittenhouse as to why he remained silent. (laughs) Isn't that part of the Miranda warnings? You have the right to remain silent. Oh no, you don't. Not if you're in Kenosha and not if this is a politically unpopular thing. Uh, that happened at the time. Uh, so, Richard, this is terrible. This is a real uh, travesty, uh, or as Woody Allen would say, it's a travesty of a mockery of a sham. Exactly. Terrible. Now, you, you mentioned the judge. Uh, there was at least two occasions that I saw. There may have been others where he basically dressed the prosecutor down. You mentioned uh, because he questioned. Rittenhouse's right to remain silent. There was another couple of occasions, at least, I think, that he he uh, basically raked the prosecutor over the coals. Uh, so that that can't be a good sign for the prosecution. No, I was a prosecutor. And one of the things you have to do, each judge has his own uh, idiosyncrasies. And if you're a prosecutor, you have to make sure that you're in sync with that judge and you don't do anything, especially in front of the jury, that's going to ruin your credibility. Because as a prosecutor, you come in with some bestowed credibility. Uh, You have some uh, uh, people look at you as an official. They trust you. And now the judge is there saying, you know, you're 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 acting illegally, basically, is what he was telling the prosecutor. You, You are misbehaving. You are being unfair. That's a terrible blow to the prestige of the prosecutor who already has a burden of proving his case beyond a reasonable doubt. And now uh, that element of trust is is gone. And I rightly so, by the way, I got very upset when I saw what this prosecutor was doing. Uh, the tenet of a prosecutor is you strike hard blows, but they must be fair ones. And these were not fair blows by any case. Uh, so and they didn't go to the heart of things. They were really just little picky things. And uh, he was being very unfair and violating the guy's constitutional rights. And the judge's ruling about the inadmissible, likely inadmissibility. Well, the, the, of a uh, prior the, remark, the the uh, the one individual that had an altercation with Rittenhouse who was shot in the arm and survived the, the prosecution, I guess, kind of their star witness. They put him on the stand and within moments, uh, his name is Gage. 
uh, Grosskreutz, he basically uh, admitted that that uh, Rittenhouse only fired after he had pointed a gun at Rittenhouse. And you could see you could see uh, other members of the prosecution team putting their burying their head in their hands as if to say, well, that's just it. We lost the case right there. What is the prosecution thinking? I mean, how do they not, you know, do they not vet their own their own uh, their own witnesses? How could they put someone like that on the stand and, and, and have him say that? Well, they were kind of forced to because one of their charges was that he shot the guy and the guy's still alive. And not to call him to the stand would be strange. How are you going to get a conviction without that? I mean, the defense would be all over that. So you had to call him. And I think they were hoping to be real slick and smooth. And they get through the examination of uh, the fellow without uh, having going through what they know is true. They're trying to avoid the truth. They know what happened. And it was very skillful. They tried they tried to help the guy out. You could tell. Uh, and uh, the, the witness. But the defense lawyer was very skillful in asking the questions the right way so that when they finally he finally put him the, the question to him. Yes. At some point, did you lower your did you lower the gun and pointed him? Yes, I did. <laughs> and that's when he shot you. Yes, that's right. That's and self-defense. That, you had your hands in the air, right? Yes. Well, I, I watched uh, some commentators who were kind of following it on YouTube, and uh, these were people with some legal background, and they were they were saying, "That's it, case over, case over." We'll come back and uh, we'll uh, continue to discuss the Kyle Rittenhouse trial with John O'Connor, trial lawyer in the United States, and also the host of. Uh, the Mysteries of Watergate and author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. More of our conversation in three minutes. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. Welcome back. John O'Connor, experienced trial lawyer in the U.S., stays with us, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism and the host of the Mysteries of Watergate podcast. We're talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, 17-year-old from Illinois who was in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, the night of a BLM riot and uh, with his AR-15 got into an altercation or several actually and uh, shot three people, two of whom were killed. Uh, He claimed self-defense. The video evidence suggests that that's in fact the case. And all of the star witnesses called by the prosecution seem to be backing that up. Uh, John, there's also um, reports that the jury in this case, they're being doxxed and they are being threatened. What do you hear about that? Well, I haven't heard and I've tried to do research on it and I just don't know. But that's the main uh, factor that concerns me. Uh, Some jurors said out loud in jury selection, some prospective jurors, that they're worried that if they returned a conviction here, something would happen to them. Uh, And I think that's clearly uh, a concern. And now what I don't know is. And, and I've tried to find this out. I think the judge has tried to protect them as much as he can. But people must know who they are. They must be people following um, uh, trying to take pictures outside of the courthouse and so forth. Uh, so I'm not sure how the doxing is occurring. Uh, but one of my concerns is, will the jury feel as though 
that whatever they do, they're not going to get uh, repercussions from it. If they do feel they're going to get repercussions, you're asking an awful lot of jurors to, in essence, be inviting perhaps their own, I hate to be melodramatic about this, but perhaps their own demise. Right, right. Uh, I, have to, I have to ask you this. I, I, I found it rather odd that the defense would put Rittenhouse on the stand to testify on his own behalf. Did you find that an unusual strategy? Well, it's unusual statistically. Certainly, in most cases, you don't want to put your defendant on. In this case, I thought it was perfectly fine. And I think if they erred on the side of caution and kept him off, it would have been a bad decision. And I'll tell you why. Because you keep a fellow off the stand because usually you don't have an angel as a defendant in cases. And there's so many things that a prosecutor can ask you that you don't want to ask. Like, uh, you know, there, there can be all kinds of things, uh, past convictions and the, and the like, uh, different statements that you could ask the fellow about that the prosecution can get into. It, and also just the whole idea that in some cases, it's very hard to logically explain <laughs> why you're innocent. And it's bad to highlight that by having the defendant on there. In this case, you've got a guy that, first of all, is very sincere. I think he's likable. I think he sells himself. I don't think he's got anything to worry about in terms of cross-examination. And what it does, uh, it's just the opposite of the mechanism that I described before when you put the defendant on and he can't explain all this evidence against him. In this case, Kyle Rittenhouse can explain everything and the prosecution can't touch him. They can't do anything to him. Uh, so I think it's it was an excellent move to put him on the stand. An excellent move. It's not something. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. That uh, instinctively defense lawyers like to do, but this was a very good move. I, I think he sold the case. Everyone who's watched him testify, if you're not, I mean, 10 out of 12 people watching him would say, hey, I'm, I'm acquitting him. The other two may be biased. Right. This is another disturbing aspect. Um, one of the star witnesses, again, supposedly for the prosecution, was a detective who basically admitted under cross-examination that they were told by the prosecution not to examine the the phone of that gentleman, uh, gentleman <laughs> that, um, that witness I mentioned earlier, Gage Grosskreutz, uh, who was shot in the arm. Um, he had a gun that uh, he didn't have a permit for it. So he had an, he had an unlawful weapon with him. 
Uh, and this detective said he was told by the prosecution, despite having a warrant, not to look into uh, Grosskreutz's phone. That sounds like that sounds like a cover up. Well, right. I mean, I think there's very, very good uh, sense in this trial that the prosecution is really uh, is really the sleazy party. They're trying to cover up things. They're trying to get in sneaky things that they shouldn't be getting into. Uh, even gross crates uh, in their direct examination was really skating around what really happened. So throughout this trial, it looks like the prosecutions are the people that are trying to conceal. And again, as a prosecutor, you want to have the sort of the idea that everything that, you, that you're, you're not afraid of any evidence. These guys are just the opposite. You know, they're, they're afraid of their shadows on this thing. They're afraid of the truth. They're afraid of gross courts pointing the gun. They're fright, afraid of the testimony about uh, how many shots Rittenhouse took and when he took them and so forth, of the video about the skateboarder and so forth and so on. So it, let's put it this way, Richard. This is a really, really dead bang case. And the factor that you have pointed to is the key factor. Will the jury be brave enough to acquit this kid and end this case? Well, uh, yeah, and the other two, I won't call them victims, but the other two people that were shot and are deceased, one is a convicted uh, child molester and the other, uh, I believe, was out on a warrant for spousal abuse. So, um, again, those and you mentioned one of those victims or deceased were were uh, attacking, was attacking Rittenhouse with a skateboard, hitting him over the head. Uh, John, how do we uh, listen to the Mysteries of Watergate podcast? Well, any place where you get podcasts, Richard, you can, whether it's Apple, uh, iTunes, uh, Buzzsprout. Also, my my book site, postgatebook.com, has a little thing, uh, a section on podcasts. You just click on that. But it's a fun podcast, and it teaches people what really happened in Watergate. And that's one of the problems we're talking about now is, in many cases, you've got to get around the legacy media to find out what is really happening in your country. And Watergate, unfortunately, began that. John, always appreciate your insights. Thanks for your time, as always. Great, Richard. Good talking to you. All right, John O'Connor. When we come back, we'll talk with uh, Amy Eileen Hamm, one of the co-founders of COSBAR, that's Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights. Uh, Kind of a hit piece from the CBC on COSBAR, and uh, she'll tell us about that, their response, and what the CBC ombudsman said in reply. That's all up and coming right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Everybody knows if you want to get stronger, you should exercise. And if you want to support your immune system, take super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice. There's no substitute for super strength oregano, the original truly wild organic oregano oil that's produced by old fashioned steam distillation. And whether you prefer it as an oil or a vegan gel cap, it has the ingredients your body needs to help support a healthy immune response. Super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice are available at health food stores across the GTA. Or, of course, you can order online at oregano.com, oregano.com. Visit the website 
and sign up for the North American Herb and Spice newsletter. And then you'll receive 5% off your online orders, 5%. The website again is oregano.com, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. Super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice at oregano.com. All right, every Thursday we get gender critical and uh, Amy Eileen Hamm is with us. She's a founding member of COSBAR. That's Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights. And um, she's here to discuss, let's call it an opinion hit piece that was published online by the CBC. And uh, they took Cosbar to, uh, to task uh, and made some uh, accusations regarding their view of, let's call it trans activism. And uh, Cosbar then complained about the, uh, the hit piece to the uh, CBC ombudsman. And then they received a reply, Cosbar did, received a reply from the digital editor at CBC News. So here to walk us through it all, again, I'm, uh, Amy Eileen Ham, and uh, again, a founding member of Cosbar, and uh, always happy to have her with us. Hey, Amy, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Very well. All right. So tell me about who wrote this, uh, this piece for the CBC. Sure. So uh, in the middle of October, a law student at the University of Calgary, a biological male um, who identifies as a trans woman, Charlotte Dalwood, wrote this piece called A Misinformation Campaign Against Transgender Rights Intensifies Ottawa Must Act. Um, It names Cosbar. It calls us anti-transgender rights activists. Um, It says that our organization was representative of arguments made against trans inclusive laws and policies. Uh, it's, it said we deliberately misread the Canadian charter um, and that we have said that including gender and human rights legislation is unlawful and that we are uh, part of a misinformation campaign. All right. And um, so you replied or, or cause bar who, uh, who wrote the reply? Was it, did you, did you craft the response or was it done with your um, other uh, colleagues at Cosbar? Yeah, I, I did a first draft, but a lot of us worked on it together. Um, and we edited before we sent this to Jack uh, Nagler, who's the ombudsman for CBC. And we pointed out all of the inaccuracies, um, things that were misleading. And we also suggested that this part where they've said we deliberately misread the charter is um, it's bordering on defamation. So anyways, we, we waited for a while and then we finally got a response November 10th, as you mentioned from Andrea Lau, she's the managing editor for CBC digital news uses she, her (laughs) pronouns in her email signature, of course. Um, And the response was, just i i posted on twitter that it, it's gaslighting essentially all right we'll get into her response in a moment amy eileen ham is with us founding member of Cosbar, canadian women's sex-based rights and also a writer at the post millennial co-host of the podcast gender critical story hour uh when we come back we'll you'll sort of walk us through uh your response to this opinion piece published on uh, by the cbc online and uh, and then we will get to the uh, the um, uh, the response from the digital editor at the CBC. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show News Talk Saga nine sixty AM. 
Amy Eileen Ham stays with us, one of the founders of Cosbar, Canadian women's sex-based rights, and uh, discussing an opinion piece published online by the CBC by uh, Charlotte Dalwood, who is a, um, a transgendered person. And the article is titled, As Misinformation Campaign Against Transgender Rights Intensifies, Ottawa Must Act. And um, Dalwood goes after Cosbar. Um, one of the accusations here Amy is across the country, anti-transgender rights activists are trying to convince Canadians that guaranteeing equality to gender minorities is not on, is not only unconstitutional. Um, Dullwood goes on, but you you um, you responded to that to the ombudsman that claim uh, mm-hmm. th- that uh, Cosbar is is anti-transgender. Your response yeah, was. We're absolutely not anti-transgender. We support equal rights for all Canadians, including trans-identified persons. Um, We have never suggested um, that it's unconstitutional to guarantee equality to any Canadians. We stand up for charter-protected sex-based rights for women. Um, That doesn't make us anti-trans or anti-any other group in doing so. Right. And they also said that COSBAR is sort of representative um, of the arguments being made against transgender inclusive laws and policies. And your response to that was what? Yeah. So, you know, we said we we only represent ourselves, not uh, any kind of vague notion about the arguments. We don't argue against trans inclusive laws or policy. We argue for women's rights and we believe that all Canadians are entitled to the same charter enshrined rights, regardless of their stated or self-identified gender. Um, you know, it's it's just false to claim that Cosbar is representing any other organization or any other people. We represent Cosbar and Cosbar only. Uh, Dalwood goes on, uh, they, meaning Cosbar, Falsely Mm -hmm. claim that the charter's equality provision covers cisgender but not transgender women because it lists sex and not gender as a protected ground. They then argue on this basis that the inclusion of gender and human rights legislation is unlawful. And how do you Mm -hmm. respond to that? Yeah, so we've never suggested that this is unlawful. What we've suggested is that it creates a conflict of rights that can have a negative impact on women's sex-based rights, um, such as we are seeing in Canada. We've talked about this previously when we look at rape shelters and prisons um, and women's sports. These are kind of the three main areas, and this is already happening. This is why COSBAR exists. It's to ensure that Canadian women's sex-based charter rights are upheld in public policy across our country. All right. Uh, In this opinion piece, Dalwood goes on. Uh, These groups are deliberately misreading the charter in an effort to uh, legitimize their legally baseless assault on human rights legislation and the transgender people that legislation protects. Yeah. So we, you know, Dalwood might believe that we've misread the charter. We strenuously disagree. There's no evidence that Dalwood presents to say that our interpretation was a misreading. Um, and then in terms of saying we're, we're making a legally baseless assault on human rights legislation is again, just absolutely untrue. If you stand up for women, it doesn't mean that you're standing against trans people. Um, And as we suggested to the ombudsman, 
Dalwood should have provided some evidence that any of this was true. And obviously this didn't happen because there is no evidence showing that it's true because it's false. Uh, Dalwood goes on, allowing this misinformation campaign to proceed unchecked has two main risks. Uh, Dalwood then says the first is that members of the gender minorities under attack will become less likely to access the legal supports to which they are entitled when the rights when their rights are violated out of the mistaken fear that the justice system will not be on their side. And two, uh, the anti-transgender discrimination will increase in frequency and intensity because those opposed to transgender rights will wrongly believe that such a discrimination has or is consistent with constitutional law. Yeah, I have to say all of the women in Cosbar took extreme exception to this accusation that the work we do makes us in any way responsible for the actions of other people. There is no way that we are responsible for deciding which Canadians access legal supports or dissuading anyone from doing so. We're not responsible for anyone's discriminatory behavior. Um, And again, just standing up for women is is not inciting anyone to discriminate against another person. Um, and, and I just think that the CBC publishing such false and baseless arguments uh, is further. Uh, it's, it's just one more way that women are being silenced when they try to speak up again about our sex-based rights in Canada. The, the uh, suggestion here uh, um, from Charlotte Dolwood seems to be, and at least to me, that we can't even have a discussion about mm-hmm. these things, about, uh, you know, the, the whole transgender uh, issue or, or trans activism uh, or how they um, they're um, insistent on, you know, moving into traditionally sort of female or women's spaces like rape shelters, Mm -hmm. like women only prisons, how that can infringe on women's sex based rights. We can't we're not even allowed to have this conversation. That seems to be the suggestion here. Yeah, Dalwood is definitely part of the quote unquote no debate club that a lot of these kind of woke postmodern activists take where they they just can't even hear a dissenting opinion. They interpret that as violence and attack. that's how fragile they are. And it, and then it's also extremely ironic that the ombudsman response, or rather the managing editor um, who actually responded on the ombudsman's behalf, <laughs> quoted to us the CBC policy about how they like to um, provide various opinions, a wide range of comments on an issue over time, things that will um, challenge people's perspectives and you know, they and also pointed out. So we did publish this piece that showed a contrary opinion. And they said um, October 23rd, another trans woman published an article, Jessica Triff, uh, about the toxicity that's happening in trans activism in Canada. However, this is another biological male um, who doesn't endorse sex segregated spaces And so despite kind of some praise that people gave for the CBC publishing this article, again, it's another biological male talking about women's rights and saying that we shouldn't have sex segregated spaces. Um, The CBC absolutely will not platform women who want us to maintain our sex based rights. 
So you mentioned that um, that some of Dalwood's comments in this piece were defamatory. Uh, will you be taking legal action? We are. We've definitely considered it. We've done some consulting, and we'll see what we can do. I know at this point we're also very interested in trying to force the CBC to give us a right of reply. Um, I, you know, I just. I, I want to ask the CBC, can you please just give women like us a voice at the table? Why are they only allowing biological males to talk about this issue? Um, what are they so afraid of? And I, I really hope that they will just let us speak, run a piece by an actual woman who endorses sex segregated spaces. Right, right. And, and that is one of the main you know purposes uh, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth of Cosbar is 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 to stand up for those sex based spaces like women's only prisons, like uh, women's sports, uh, like rape shelters. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, the you know, the CBC claims that they're publishing a diversity of viewpoints on the issue, but um, they're absolutely not. They're completely ignoring anyone who um anyone who actually wants to uphold uh, sex-specific rights. So, you know, like in this piece that they pointed to us where they said we did publish um, a dissenting viewpoint, this other trans woman is saying that when you're making inclusion policies for women's spaces, they need to be reasonable, rational, arrived at through good faith discussions and debate, um, that there are some instances when laws have been problematic and then they bring up the wax my balls hearings, et cetera. Um, So, but if you read between the lines, it's like, this is, again, it's someone who endorses biological males being inside women's rape shelters, prisons and sports. It's hardly hearing from the other side in this issue. It's not. No, you know, as far as we're concerned, there is no reasonable, policy to allow biological males into these spaces. That's why we exist as an organization. All right, Amy, we'll follow this one closely. We'll look forward to speaking uh, with you again and uh, see where this this goes with the CBC. Thank you so much, as always. Thank you. Amy Eileen Hamm is a Cosbar founding member, writer at the Pulse Millennial and co-host of the podcast Gender Critical Story Hour. All right, don't go anywhere. There's plenty of show still to come. Hour two starts in, what, about five minutes. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard! The Richard Serrett Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right, hour two. Uh, No Lou, the irascible but lovable one, uh, unfortunately, having some technical issues, and uh, we'll get Lou back on this program as quickly as possible. Uh, Kelly Brown will be here from Rubicon Capital to discuss Dr. Kieran Moore's strange press conference yesterday. And Peter Navarro, former Trump aide, uh, is our feature guest. A government watchdog has sued the federal government on behalf of OpenTheBooks.com to obtain access to Dr. Anthony Fauci's financial disclosure records. Adam Andrzejewski is founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. Adam, welcome. How are you? Great to be on the program, Richard. Thank you for your interest in our work. Tell us a little bit about OpenTheBooks.com. 
So at OpenTheBooks.com, our mission is quite simply summarized as every dime online in real time. And to that end, last year, we did something pretty unique. We filed 40,500 Freedom of Information Act requests on nearly every single substantial government body across the across the United States. So that's at the federal level, the state level, and the local level. And we were successful capturing nearly every single public employee salary and pension record, for example. And we've got, you know, the federal checkbook, the line-by-line vendor spending all the way back to the year 2001. And we do have the uh, state checkbooks in 49 out of 50 states. We don't have California, but we're suing them. And we're in front of a Sacramento state court judge on November 19th in summary judgment. And we we expect to win there as well and crack open the checkbook in California in the Golden State for the first time. So you asked Judicial Watch, which is a government watchdog, to sue the federal government to obtain Dr. Fauci's financial disclosure records. He's a public employee. Shouldn't those be available to anyone at any time? Why would you have to sue to get those? Well, it shouldn't take a subpoena or a lawsuit to be able to get Fauci's basic employment documents. So here's what we asked for. And to put this in a little bit of context, back in January of this year, we were the organization, our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com, that looked at our federal employment data, salary data, and found that Dr. Anthony Fauci was the number one most highly compensated federal employee. So he out-earned everybody, the president, four-star generals in the United States military, 4.3 million of his colleagues within the federal agencies and the post office, Department of Defense. And so many people had a question as to how this scientist at a sub-agency of a sub-agency, you know, there's there's the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the National Institutes of Health, and then underneath that is Fauci's agency. So how can this guy out-earn everybody? And so we had questions, too, and we, we filed this Freedom of Information Act request with the National Institutes of Health. And we wanted to know we wanted copies of Anthony Fauci's employment contract. And what's important is all additions, amendments and changes to that contract over the years. We wanted a copy of his job description and we wanted a copy of his conflict of interest disclosures and his financial disclosures. Now, all of this. All of this is legal paperwork subject to sunshine, and we wanted to see it. And they slow walked it, and they produced hardly any of it. And so last week, we got serious. We partnered with Judicial Watch, and we sued them. So what the, the, the fact that you have to sue to get disclosure suggests what? That he's hiding something? Well, they're acting like they have a lot to hide. So, Richard, they did disclose a small portion of some old records. And we took a look at those. We made national news last week because we found out the reason why Fauci. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. 
Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Is the most highly paid. And it's, it started in 2004 with a memo during the George W. Bush administration. And the memo specifically lays out the reason he makes the most money. Fauci back in 2004 got a permanent pay adjustment. And the reason for that permanent pay adjustment that continues to this day is because he was tip of the spear on bioterrorism. In other words, Richard, Fauci, Dr. Fauci was paid to prevent the next pandemic starting in 2004. He's paid to prevent it. How's he doing so far? <laughs> well, the real question out there, hopefully will be answered over the next month, a couple of months, is whether the firemen became the arsonists. Because as what's coming to light, even as exposed by the Washington Post, Fauci was funding in contravention of two presidents, Obama and Trump, very controversial, very dangerous experiments. These experiments are called gain-of-function experiments. And the Washington Post outlined since 2012 through 2020 that Fauci and his agency funded 17 of those experiments for over $40 million. And now critics have always said that these, these experiments are very dangerous because if there's a lab leak or if the virus that they soup up and they, they try to uh, make this virus technologically able to jump from bats or animals to humans. And then in the lab, they try to uh, come up with the vaccine to, to solve the pandemic that they've created in their lab. This is very dangerous. And the critics always said, if that virus jumps outside the lab on a leak, we've got a problem. Or if it gets handed off to nefarious actors, bad actors, we have a problem. Adam Angievsky stays with us, CEO, founder of OpenTheBooks.com. They have asked a government watchdog, Judicial Watch, to sue the federal government to obtain access to Dr. Fauci's financial disclosure records. One of the documents you, you asked for was his current job description. On the face of it, that seems like a rather mundane sounding document. Don't we already know what his job description is? Why are you looking for that document specifically? Well, this is very important because it specifically would outline his duties and responsibilities. And I want to just put one, one key point out there. So we know that the National Institutes of Health currently, they employ, according to our data captured at OpenTheBooks.com, they employ 80 public relations officers. Yet everybody, since the pandemic started, has been treated to Anthony Fauci doing public affairs, public relations on the pandemic. And so we want to know if public affairs is in his job description. There's a little known law called the Gillette Amendment that dates, dates back to 1913. And it expressly bars the publicity man, the bureaucrat that gets out there and does propaganda in public affairs and, and PR campaigns. You can't do that. So we want to see if PR in public affairs is actually in Dr. Anthony Fauci's job description after 400 of these events and the agency itself employing 80 PR specialists. All right. That's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that. And what about the conflict of interest documents? What are you hoping, what do you think you might potentially uncover there? So we want to know if Dr. Anthony Fauci is receiving royalties 
from pharmaceutical companies. Over at the National Institutes of Health on current employees and employees that used to work at NIH, there's up to 1,000 employees or former employees receiving royalties from companies. And this is perfectly legal. However, we want to know if Dr. Anthony Fauci has any conflicts of interest on this. And look, these are basic documents he has to file, file every single year. We want a copy of that, and we're serious about obtaining it. So again, let's talk about this database of all royalties paid. Royalties for what? Drug patents? Yes. So researchers at NIH, they contribute alongside pharmaceutical companies, for instance, alongside Moderna on the on the uh, development of the covid vaccine. You had uh, researchers in Fauci's agency working with Moderna on developing that vaccine as right away when that pandemic hit in March of 2020. If you Google, you'll come up with news articles that the NI that Fauci's agency at N at the National Allergies and Infectious Diseases Agency, they were working with Moderna to develop the vaccine. There's there's legal standards then as to whether those individuals working at for the federal government can be compensated on royalties from the pharmaceutical company. Now, this database, according to agency policy, is supposed to be on their website. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Since the middle 2000s, and we can find no evidence of it, so we filed a Freedom of Information Act request for it. When they didn't produce it, we sued them for it. If it was to be discovered, and this is speculation, that Dr. Fauci is receiving royalties for a drug that could be used as a therapeutic for COVID, for example, uh, and he is, let's say, promoting that particular drug over ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, etc. That would that would be a, a clear conflict of interest, would it not? Well, all these things would invite ethical considerations. And so I don't want to speculate, Richard. I just want to see the documents. And unfortunately, we had to sue for them. What's the next step, Adam? How difficult it is? Is it to to is it like a FOIA request? Right. So that we started with the Freedom of Information Act request. And now when they didn't produce the database of royalties and Anthony Fauci's uh, basic employment documents, we partnered with Judicial Watch. We filed that suit. The agency's actually been served with the suit. So we're on record with them and with the court. And the next step next month is a hearing in front of a federal court judge. And if the if the judge were to rule in your favor that they must release these documents, what would the timeline look like? How quickly would they have to disclose? 
Well, I think it would be pretty much immediate. I think this thing gets ra- this is a pretty cut and dried case. Um, I don't think they can wiggle out of this one. Uh, this is there's a lot of precedent on all of these different points. And I, I think they have to produce the database of royalties. And I think they have got they have to produce rapidly Dr. Anthony Fauci's employment documents. And look, we were very kind. I mean, we waited, waited nine months, probably longer and were more patient than what we should have been on this. And I back in June, I sent Dr. Fauci a personal email to his account, putting him on notice that his agency was in violation of federal sunshine laws regarding his employment documents. So he knew as well. Once you receive the documents, if and when you receive the documents, will you open source those? What will happen? Yeah, we're a transparency organization at OpenTheBooks.com. So everybody listening to the program, come to our website, sign up for our emails, become a part of the organization, and we'll keep you updated in real time. And you'll have first access to the documents once we get them. OpenTheBooks.com. Adam Angievsky, CEO and founder. Appreciate your work and your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right. When we come back, the accidental and unofficial COVID data analyst, Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital on Dr. Kieran Moore's strange press conference yesterday. That's in three minutes. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. Welcome back. Have a listen to this short clip from... Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, from this press conference yesterday. We will be working with provincial offenses officers to make sure uh, that um, they're adhering to all the best practices to protect clients that are visiting uh, and spending time in these venues. I, I am concerned as we go indoors. We know this virus likes low humidity, that it can stay in the air longer in those environments, that there is a risk of transmission, and hence the reason we need only vaccinated, protected people going into those venues uh, to keep them safe. So um, we, we will continue to look at the progressive enforcement model of the verification process. All right. Rather um, interesting that the suggestion there to me anyway, is that uh, somehow this uptick in cases, despite the high uptake in vaccines must be because the unvaccinated are what forging their vax passports and sneaking into these vaccine only venues and infecting the vaccinated. Just think of the, the, the mental gymnastics uh, <laughs> that these uh, public health officials are going through right now to uh, to explain what could be easy, easily explained as just a, an ineffective vaccine. Uh, to discuss further, Kelly Brown, independent ICU data investigator and uh, also independent investor with Rubicon Capital. Hey, Kelly, welcome back. Hey, Richard, nice to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. Likewise. I know you isolated that clip on your Twitter account. And uh, obviously, you know, you you uh, uh, you thought that that was a rather strange thing for him to say. There's two things. One, the idea that somehow the unvaccinated are sneaking into these venues and causing, you know, this infection with among the vaccinated. Was that sort of your your takeaway as well, that, that that's how he's justifying it? Yeah, there's one of them. There's there's, as you say, the, the first there's uh, a public health risk generally that they want to keep unvaccinated people out of restaurants and bars and things. And, and that's a public health measure. And then the second, as you say, is, yeah, there's there's alleged evidence that on mass people are going into uh, arenas uh, and with fake vaccine passports and, and causing spread amongst unvaccinated people. Um, 
shaky premises at premises at best uh, and just absolutely incredibly inappropriate and divisive language from this person. Right. And, and to my knowledge, uh, I didn't watch the entire press conference, but he didn't offer up any evidence, did he, that, that the unvaccinated are forging passports and infecting the vaccinated? Not that I could see. It was a question from one of the members of the media uh, alleging this. And look, I, I mean, it's 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 not unreasonable to think that a few bad apples might be. Well, I don't even want to call them bad apples, but a few people may be doing that. But the suggestion that this might be happening on mass and that this is somehow going to force uh, expedite the conversion to the full QR code and not having the ability to present a paper certificate and and then justifying what he's calling progressive enforcement measures. I just I was appalled yesterday when I when I heard the language uh, repeated. Right. Well, first of all, there is the the whole issue of, uh, you know, this again, we have to keep hammering away at this point because it's so crucial. This whole narrative that somehow uh, by separating the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, you're going to stem the, the flow of the spread. Since we know even the CDC has acknowledged this time and time again, the vaccinated can spread covid. They carry just as high a viral load as the unvaccinated when infected. Why, why are they not? Why are they not acknowledging what everybody knows? That's a million dollar question. The, the, the amount of evidence that is piling up that suggests that there are breakthrough cases, vaccinated folks can spread the virus just as well. Um, and, and now in Ontario with the, the cases, the cases are ticking up a little bit here, but, but again, they're, they're ticking up in both cohorts of folks. They're, 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 they're going up and uh, in both at the same time. So again, I made this point last time. It's not like unvaccinated folks are seeing a runaway epidemic and vaccinated folks, the curve is going down. That's not what's happening here. The other thing that you pointed out, that's kind of troublesome is the, uh, the unelected unaccountable chief medical officer of Ontario now has sort of basically announced that he's in charge and that he's announcing more stringent enforcement rules. That's not up to him, is it? Last I checked, uh, this this person, uh, Kira, Dr. Kieran Moore, is an unelected official, and uh, under any other circumstances, would not have the kind of authority. Uh, not only to see Richard, I see there's two things here. There's there's the actual implementation of whatever rules he might deem appropriate, but then there's also the messaging at the mic, which we saw yesterday, which is incredibly divisive and has an impact on people. Uh, I I would remind him. Dr. Moore, that there are about 1.5 people eligible to receive a vaccine, 1.5 million people eligible to receive a vaccine in this in this province who have chosen not to. And those people find that language incredibly scary and it's wrong and it needs to stop. Amen to that. All right, Kelly, always uh, appreciate your insights and your time. Thanks, Richard. Nice to speak with you today. Kelly Brown, independent investor, Rubicon Capital, and he is the accidental and unofficial COVID-19 data analyst. You can follow him on Twitter at Rubicon Capital underscore at Rubicon Capital underscore. When we come back, a former assistant to President Donald J. Trump and author of In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year. That conversation starts in three minutes. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. 
Hey, welcome back. Of all those who served in the President Trump administration who might offer an insider's account, Peter Navarro is uniquely qualified. He's one of only three senior White House officials who would be by President Trump's side from the 2016 campaign to the end of the president's first term in office. At the White House, Dr. Navarro served as an assistant to the president and the director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy. He'd play a, a key role in helping President Trump create nearly half a million manufacturing jobs while saving their shipyards and strengthening the U.S. defense industrial base. When the pandemic from communist China attacked America in 2020, Navarro would serve as the Defense Production Act policy coordinator. He would play a pivotal role in securing a travel plan on China in January 2020, a courageous action by the president that saved hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of lives. Dr. Navarro holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Tufts University, a master's in public administration from the Kennedy School of Government, and a PhD in economics from Harvard University. He is the author of In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year. Peter Navarro, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? I am doing uh, just wonderful here today. I have as my background, by the way, uh, the uh, the house that Tony Fauci built. This is the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, it's uh, Moonlights as a P4 bioweapons lab run by the People's Liberation Army of China. And a big part of the In Trump Time book is dedicated to the mission of moving Fauci out of government and into a jail cell because uh, he knew as early as January 2020, not only did this virus that's killing everybody uh, come from this lab in Wuhan, China, but that he may well have been responsible. He is the man who used American taxpayer dollars to fund gain of function experiments at this P4 bioweapons lab where gain of function experiments are those which can turn a harmless bat virus into a human killer. And in January, as I document in the In Trump Time book, Fauci himself was told um, as early as January of 2020 that the, the virus uh, was likely genetically engineered and, and therefore had bioweapons uh, potential. So I would meet Fauci um, in, that, in the Situation Room at the White House have the first of many showdowns. Uh, it's all in the In Trump Time book. But I can tell your uh, your audience uh, that this man is pure evil. He's a narcissist, a sociopath. And uh, if he had simply told us in January 2020 the truth, come clean, went to the president and said, sir, I think um, that we may have made a big mistake here at my agency. Uh, this may be a bioweapon from, uh, from China. Uh, it would have changed everything. We would have gotten the, the, we would have demanded from the communist Chinese the original genome for the virus, which we still don't have. That would have allowed us to develop a much stronger, more efficient and complex vaccine to deal with all the many mutations of the virus. And it would have saved millions of lives. Uh, what, what's interesting, Richard, is that Fauci not only committed the biggest lie of omission in in uh, in history he doubled down on that lie by using elaborate cover-up there's a there's a a figure in the in trump time book i describe as the dumbest human who ever tried to play god it's a guy named peter dasik of the eco health alliance dasik was the guy 
who Fauci funneled money through to the bat lady of Wuhan, the, the person most likely responsible for the Frankenstein virus. But Daszak also was used by Fauci um, to cover up his possible complicity by spinning a campaign to let you believe uh, that somehow this virus came from a bat cave a thousand miles away. and was just a normal occurrence of history. Right. Now, despite the fact that there were no bats found at the wet market and uh, and so forth, but uh, and and Fauci, uh, we've seen those exchanges between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci repeatedly denying, denying, denying that he funded gain of function. Even the NIH has since admitted it. But and, and yet still, Dr. Fauci denies he sort of reframed the definition of gain of function in an attempt to uh, um, did you have an inkling early on that he was being deceptive and did you perhaps i don't know press the president to fire dr dr fauci well let me start with the firing if you look carefully uh at the cover of the end trump time book i'm leaning uh over the resolute desk uh uh, with the president, I may or may not be telling the fire Fauci. I actually did tell him the fire Fauci twice early on um, after a meeting in the sit room. I'll describe. Uh, I don't blame the president for not following my advice. Hey, I like the trade guy. What do I know? Right. Um, although I was the guy who predicted China would create a virus uh, and kill millions. I did that in a book 14 years earlier. But I digress. The problem I had was twofold in the White House. You had the big four of the healthcare agencies supporting Fauci, Redfield at CDC, uh, Hahn at the FDA, Collins um, at the NIH, and Azar at uh, Health and Human Services. But more importantly, uh, the coward uh, Mick Mulvaney, who was acting chief of staff, feckless Mick Mulvaney, um, and the press team at the White House were like, oh, can't fire Fauci, too much blowback. Um, and I was like Churchill about Hitler. It's like, no, 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 strangle that Fauci baby in his crib. Of course, I lost that race. But but to to your question, the first time I met Fauci was on January 28th. 2020 in the Situation Room. I never met him before, didn't know who he was, didn't know he walked on water. President Trump had sent me there um, to make the case to the task force to pull down the flights from China into the U.S. There were three people in the White House at that point who were taking the virus seriously, the president, Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, and myself. Uh, and I go to the sit room that day, and there's like four people there I knew who would fight me on it. Mulvaney, as I, as I said earlier, uh, but there was a, one of Pompeo's hacks. Pompeo's a great guy, but the, the hack beside me was not. And then there was the bumbling uh, Robert Redfield of the CDC who would screw up the testing and, and that Azar. But this little guy, these little round glasses sitting across from me. Uh, and um, quickly, within a minute, I'm in a violent argument with him. And he keeps saying, Travel bans don't work. In my experience, travel bans don't work. And I'm thinking to myself, like Butch to Sundance, it's like, who, who is this guy, right? And finally, <laughs> I say, dude, I actually call him dude. And I say, dude, it's like, if there's 20,000 Chinese nationals coming in every day in, into America, and many of them from Wuhan lit up like a Christmas tree with virus, are you telling me, that we're better off just letting them come in. And he goes, travel bans don't work. And I knew right then, 
Richard, that that this guy thought he was smarter than he was uh, and that he was going to hurt the America and, and President Trump. What I didn't know when I go back to the lie of omission, what I didn't know is that was that. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. SOB sitting there, that 80-year-old arrogant narcissist sociopath sitting there, looking at everybody around the table, knew, knew that he had funded the lab where that virus had popped up and that it was genetically engineered and almost certainly from there. So um, Fauci Dr. belongs in a jail cell. No, no question about it. Rand Dr. Paul, Navarro, I've got to jump in. Pardon the interruption. Go. I've got to take yeah, a time out. We'll come back. Dr. Peter Navarro stays with us former assistant to President Trump and author of In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Don't go away. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. We're back with Dr. Peter Navarro. He served as President Trump's director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy and also served as the Defense Production Act Policy Coordinator. His uh, brand new book is In Trump Time, a Journal of America's Plague Year. So, Dr. Navarro, if I understand your role, you were sort of responsible for helping to put America on this war footing against against the coronavirus, ramping up, for example, a production of ventilators and PPE. Uh, did you also take uh, play a role in in deploying those hospital ships to coronavirus hot zones in America? Uh, no, I uh, I can't take any credit for that. Uh, what I can uh, do in in the interim time book is close this gap, particularly between the narrative and the fake news of the lost February, the claim that we were caught on our heels versus what we were actually doing, and uh, the, the 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 deployment of the ships. Um, and, and the tent city there was a beautiful thing. But what I was focused on and beginning on February 9th, as I document in, in the interim time book, um, I wrote the first memo I wrote was was now of historical uh, importance because I said in it that if we begin right now on February 9th, we could have a vaccine by October or November. And that was that was bold. Uh, but it was prescient. Uh, the, the in Trump time uh, title of the book is, is a coinage I uh, came up with early in 2017, which means as quickly as possible. I understood that with a president who was business savvy, we could get things done quickly. And, and I was I was forecasting something we could do in a third of the time. And and uh, the story in and of itself of how we did it is is priceless. But we did that. And then we had what I call the five vector 
attack strategy, Richard. So I had like a dozen memos through February where we not only got the vaccine rolling, um, we got in place a widespread use of therapeutics, including two that would help save the president's life, the monoclonal antibodies and remdesivir. Uh, You mentioned the ventilators. One of the great miracles I reported in the In Trump Time book is the 17 days we were able to stand a ventilator up um, by General Motors and this company called Ventec. I mean, that is that is truly record time. Every American who needed a ventilator uh, had a ventilator. And then there's a there's a wonderful story in, in Trump time. The based I called it based in the, the movie at the Italian job. The Mark Wahlberg one, I called it the Italian swab job. Uh, I get this call like literally on a Friday afternoon from a frantic Rick Bright at the Health and Human Services Agency. And, and there's there's a, a million test swabs stuck in Italy to, because they closed all air travel because the, the virus is just rampaging uh, through Italy. And, and Bright says, we need these or we're going to have shortages. So I did my in Trump time thing and I was able to get a Pentagon plane in the air uh, heading towards the United States. Uh, while it was flying, I called up the CEO of FedEx, Fred Smith, and asked him, I, I said, Fred, look, we got to get these million swaps to six different cities. Uh, can you help a brother out here? And he said, sure. Make sure the plane lands in Memphis. So we landed in Memphis and there's six FedEx planes waiting for the for the military plane. As soon as it lands, swabs get transferred off a ghost. And from the time I got the call to the time those swabs reached uh, their destination, it was like a mere 72 hours. So that was that was pretty cool. Um, And those were the kinds of things we were doing in February. And this was. I mean, Fauci was still saying that this thing was only going to be no worse than the flu. He was saying saying that in March. Um, and uh, you had Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, like like dancing in the streets of Chinatown in March. The Blasio is like, come on down. And, and meanwhile, I'm writing these dozen memos, getting our five vector attack strategy going on behalf of the president. And uh, I, I think that story alone is worth uh, the, the people reading the in Trump type book because it really sets uh, the record straight. Right. And, and as you point out, the Dems were the ones who were saying there's nothing to worry about. And yet uh, only a few months later, the Dems were the ones complaining yeah. that uh, the yes. Trump administration will we'll take an, one final quick time out and uh, come back sure. to my conversation with Dr. Peter Navarro. Stay with us. The author of In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year back with more in a moment. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right. A few minutes remain with Dr. Peter Navarro, former assistant to President Donald Trump and author of In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year. Um, What was going through your mind when in the early days of the vaccine you had Dems and mainstream media saying, well, we would never trust a Trump vaccine. And now, of course, it's being mandated. God, I love that question. I just love that question. Yeah, the uh, the vax hesitancy uh, was really, truly uh, born uh, in the cauldron of the Democrats attacking Trump. Um, I'm into homages in the In Trump Time book, and there's two chapters by Perry Mason. And one of them is, is called The Curious Case of the delayed vaccine. And I get into precisely that issue, Richard, as I told you on February 9th, 
2020, I predicted we could have a vaccine by as early as October. And we actually hit that mark. But uh, a combination of things happened to delay that vaccine for about a month. And if you believe the rhetoric of the Democrats now and Fauci, a month delay adds up to tens of thousands of Americans who are who were killed by that delay. So who was responsible for that delay? Well, first of all, uh, there was Pfizer. Um, this is documented in the interim time book, how Pfizer and this despicable CEO, Albert Borla. Here's what they did in order to announce that they had a vaccine that was 90 percent effective. They had to go through the final phase three trial and, and hit what's a, a thing called confirmed cases. They needed 32 confirmed cases. And to get those, they had to have actually do the testing. So what they did was they took swabs from people. But instead of doing the testing, they stored the swabs precisely because they wouldn't have to announce the good news before the election. And why would they do that? Why would Pfizer do that? Well, big pharma throughout the election spent literally millions of dollars on ads attacking the president uh, because he wanted to bring drug prices down and onshore drug production. There's a there's a funny vignette in the end Trump time book about me meeting with these Pfizer execs in their Gucci shoes and look, they're looking down the nose at me. Um, is the American nativist who wanted to bring supply chains home. And the, their attitude was, hey, we're a sovereign government. Get out of our face. But there was also Fauci. He played a critical role with his rhetoric that built in, you know, like, don't trust the Trump vaccines. Kamala Harris actually did it in um, in the vice presidential debate. You know, this is Trump vaccine. I ain't doing that. You know, that, that kind of smack talk. And so once the vaccine hits, the Democrats... And, and Fauci and everyone are wondering, you know, why are people hesitant? Well, um, they, they planted those seeds. Uh, here's the thing I'd say about the vaccine. Um, I knew at the time when I wrote the memos and there's a wonderful character in the Trump time book, Doc Hatfield. He was my medical advisor. We knew that the vaccine would be imperfect and that therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, monoclonal antibodies would be a critical part of that. And, and we 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 knew that the virus would mutate. And, and so the optimal strategy for the vaccine was vaccinate only the ones who need it the most. Right. And give therapeutics to everybody else. Never did I imagine or President Trump imagine that the vaccine would be used as a passport and a weapon to put people out of work or keep people out of restaurants and theaters and, and isolate them socially and culturally. And, and it's. Um, it's truly a, a bad strategy from a health point of view, uh, but economically, it's really roiled our supply chains because that universal vax policy is putting longshoremen and truckers and pilots and food processors uh, out of work because they don't want to take a vaccine that they understand rightly from a scientific view. They, they probably don't need if they're healthy or if they've already had the virus and they've got plenty of antibodies. Right. I mean, I would argue that the the overreaction to the pandemic has been the disruptor of the supply chains, not the pandemic itself. Uh, so as you say, the, you never imagined that that uh, the vaccine mandate would be wielded as such a weapon. And here now we find ourselves in a uh, heading into hyperinflation because of a disruption to yeah. these supply chains. We're seeing historic abuses of 
uh, civil rights, not only in the United States, but also here in Canada. Um, what, what, what is going through your mind as you're seeing this now? And, and if you have any insights on what uh, the, the former president is thinking? Well, uh, the, the last third of the in Trump time book deals with the uh, the sensitive issue, let us say, of the stolen election um, during uh, right after November 3rd. Uh, there's a chapter in the in Trump time book where I talk about going into th- on Thanksgiving Day uh, to analyze the election irregularities and frauds like no turkey, no football, no problem. And um, I, I, by the time uh, November 3rd rolled around, I watched what happened and then did my analysis. I would prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that that the election uh, was stolen. Um, and it wasn't like any silver bullet. It was more like death by a thousand election irregularities across the six battleground states of Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Nevada. And as as time has gone by, we now know like that, like uh, eventually they knew that Kennedy stole it from Nixon in 1960, that this election was in all likelihood stolen. So, you know, every time I see Biden make yet another mistake or Pelosi make yet another mistake, pushing us further into a very dangerous economic or national security problem. Uh, I, I think about this stolen election and, and why it's important to get to the bottom of November 3rd before we talk about whether the president's running in 2024 or whether we can take back as Republicans the House in 2022. I don't think we have that much time before the Biden regime uh, destroys everything we hold dear. And of course, uh, folks uh, north of the border where you are uh, will be collateral damage for the Biden uh, fecklessness and incompetence. Uh, so were you at all encouraged by the results uh, a, a week ago Tuesday with regards to uh, um, Virginia and, you know, deep blue states like yeah. New Jersey? Yeah, yes, but but I, I'm clear eyed about this. Uh, I, I talk about in the end Trump time book, the, the schism that I witnessed firsthand between the the corporate global party of Davos wing of the traditional Republican Party led by Mitch McConnell in the Senate and Kevin McCarthy in the House. And uh, they're the people who uh, they love tax cuts and deregulation, as President Trump did. Um, But they oppose secure borders because they like that cheap labor coming in and they want to offshore jobs. So they don't like things like uh, fair trade policies. And, and so you have this 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 tension now between Trump, mainstream working class Republicans and deplorables versus that. And so for me, it would be a Pyrrhic victory if the Republicans took back the House and McConnell and McCarthy were still in leadership uh, positions. We need to embrace Trumpism economically. We've proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that it works uh, and um, but you know, we'll, we'll as the president loves to say, let's see what happens. Uh, do you uh, do you speak with him regularly? Uh, yeah, yes, uh, infrequently. But when but when he needs me, he calls me. And if I've got something uh, I want to talk to him about or suggest to him, I will do that. Um, and um, he's uh, he's uh, I think uh I'm, I'm sure he's as as frustrated and unhappy about how Biden is. Uh, yeah, it'd be one thing to undo the Trump legacy, 
But that's not really the issue. He undoes it. Trump Biden does it in a way which really is destructive to our economy and national security. And again, Canada's collateral damage in all of this. If we wind up in a war with China over Taiwan because Joe Biden's weak and feckless, uh, that affects everybody around the world. Dr. Navarro, how do we get a copy of In Trump Time? Well, please go to uh, to Amazon. Uh, and by the way, the audio edition is, is pretty cool. I'm the narrator. That's not why it's cool. But I got different voices from the book actually doing their own parts. I'm surprised nobody else has done that. That's selling well. You can go to uh, Amazon. Maybe in Canada, it's, I'm not sure how many bookstores carry it there. But Amazon or Barnes & Noble online, um, it, uh, it's on the bestseller list Uh on USA Today, just broke today, and um, it was number nine on all books, not just nonfiction, but all books on Amazon last week. Um, it's doing well, very well, but it needs your help because we're, we're uh, for, uh, except for shows like this, uh, we're getting no love from uh, the corporate media who just want to bury the truth. They, they love books that come out and slam the president or Melania, but when it's whiskey straight, no chaser, hard truths, to power. Uh, they, they just ignore you. So thanks for the show, Richard. I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, grab uh, grab in Trump time. And uh, my money back guarantee is if you, if you read it and you still think, think Fauci shouldn't be in jail, I'll give you double your money back. All right. Good enough. Well, you've always got a, uh, a home here on the program. Anytime, Dr. Navarro, we'd love to have you back. Thank you. All right. Great questions. Thank you, sir. All right. In Trump time, a journal of America's plague year. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob and Brandon. What a team. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing. Uh, the Lim Riddler, your chance to wear a, pick, a pair of tickets to the Mississauga Steelheads in action. Plus, a pediatric brain surgeon discusses the impact of delayed diagnoses for her young patients due to COVID-19. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. Be well, find joy, hold fast, and push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at 4. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.